Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Tonight we're going to do an overview or a survey of quite a few verses, and then we'll return over the next couple of weeks and cover these verses in, in quite a bit more detail. But I think an, a bird's eye view or an overview of these verses would be appropriate for tonight. These are verses 22 through 33 of chapter 5. I'm not exactly sure how many weddings I've performed, but one thing that I do see in weddings is pretty constant. When I get to that portion of the wedding where I give the bride her vows and I call upon her to, the, to submit to the leadership of her husband, most of, or at least many of the 20-somethings, the 20-somethings in terms of female age in the audience, um, react visibly, sometimes even audibly. <laughs> now, that used to bother me. It used to anger me, actually. It used to bother me. <laughs> then I, I began to be amused by it. But now I'm saddened by it because I realize the problems that are going to be down the road for these young ladies if something doesn't change. I fully understand, or at least since I'm talking about women, I, I, that's the probably hyperbole. <laughs> Let me just say I understand or I can understand. Let's put it this way. I can understand. <laughs> I can understand why so many women balk at the idea of submitting to their husbands as it seems at least on the surface like that could surely be demeaning. Many women surmise that submission is an acknowledgement of inferiority. And I think they rightly chafe at that prospect, at the prospect of what they view as an archaic lifestyle. They would say things like, maybe that was okay for my great-grandmother or my great-great-grandmother or Sarah in the Bible, but that's not me. Well, as an accommodation, some pastors are now, including in their services, vows of mutual submission based upon Ephesians 5.21, which says, and be subject to one another in the fear or the respect of Christ. In, in this kind of marriage ceremony, they call upon the husband to submit to his wife, and then the wife to submit to the husband. Mutual submission, when it's presented that way, which is not the way that it should be presented, by the way, but when it's presented that way, it's meaningless. There is no meaning to that at all. It's just a way for a pastor to get around an uncomfortable situation and make the 20-somethings happy. Unfortunately, I don't think he's making God happy when he does that, when you punt that way, when you do that kind of thing to his word. Actually, that kind of nonsense, if, proper, if actually followed out to its conclusion, is going to lead to the most unhappy of marriages. Because you're purposely doing something in a way that God did not ordain. That kind of marriage will never fulfill the potential that God designed Christian marriages to have. The problem is, is it, it all gets back to handling the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible is the word of God. As such, it's a sacred book. But we have so many copies of this now that we have lost some of the sacredness of it. You know, we take our Bible, we throw it in the back seat, we put it in the trunk, we put it in our briefcase. Sometimes we lose it, we just buy another one. When in times past, it wasn't quite that way. Since, since there may have been only one copy per family or maybe one copy per neighborhood, it was treated with more respect. But not so much because of the pages, but because of what's in it. It's God's self-disclosure, and it should be handled 
with the utmost care. I'm not talking about the, the paper and ink. I'm talking about what's in it, the words that are reflected there, the ideas, the theology there should be handled with the utmost care. A lack of precision in biblical interpretation can lead to and will often lead to dangerous, dangerous misapplication of the word. For if we have an improper interpretation, it just is going to follow that our application is going to be flawed. Does that make sense? If our interpretation is flawed, then what follows that, our application is going to be flawed as well. We have too many people today, frankly, who are teaching the Bible without understanding the Bible. And the results are a culture that is being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Now, by the way, and I, and I need to say this, I've been looking for the appropriate time. This is as good as any. I am not proposing that one has to be seminary trained to teach the Bible. But if you are going to teach the Bible, and you're going to open your mouth and declare something along the lines of, thus says the Lord, and that's what you're doing when you preach, when you teach the Word. You're saying, this is God's self-disclosure to you. This is God's message to you. If you're going to do that, you had better be really sure that what you're presenting is an accurate representation of what God has revealed concerning himself. For remember our study of James. Let not many of you become teachers, for as such you will incur a stricter discipline. In James' epistle, he's talking to people that thought that perhaps it was the chic thing to do. I know it's not that way anymore. But in that day, it was a chic thing to do to be a Bible teacher. And all, everybody wanted to do that. They thought, well, I couldn't serve the Lord without doing that. No, there are plenty of ways to serve the Lord. We all have our own giftedness, our own niche. So don't force yourself into that if that's not where you should be. Because you will incur a stricter discipline. If you say, this is what God says, you better be right. Every time I stand before you, I do it with fear and trembling. Because if I'm wrong, you might have inappropriate application. I'm going to be severely disciplined. I get enough discipline on my own just from other bad decisions. I don't need more by a sloppy handling of the Word of God. Maybe I can illustrate the importance of something like seminary training to theological study and then presentation of that study um, like this. If you want to procure a will for yourself, let's say it's a simple will. There's not a lot of uh, complicated factors with regard to it. You could, or maybe some other simple document, maybe, maybe something like a simple corporation that's not complicated. You could go to a company, uh, just one that advertises all the time, LegalZoom.com. You could get on the Internet. I've done it. You can get on the Internet. You can use LegalZoom.com. You fill out it, some appropriate boxes. They send you some information. You send them some money, and you have your document. You could do that. And probably, at least they advertise, the documents are acceptable. I certainly hope they are for something simple like that. But if you find yourself being sued or perhaps arrested and in jail for some sort of offense, you've been accused of a crime, you might want to contact a licensed attorney, one who's been to law school, one who's passed the state bar exam. And if you're in big enough trouble, what you would typically do, if you're maybe the one trying to find an attorney for somebody else that's in, in jail, you would call around and find the best possible attorney with the best possible reputation with, that fits within your budget. That makes sense? Well, in the same way, 
if you wake up tomorrow morning, and let's say you have a, a lump under your arm, you could go to something like WebMD. <laughs> you could. And, and you could get a lot of information about lumps under the arm. And you could self-diagnose and perhaps even self-treat. But if that lump is still there a couple days from now, and perhaps it's becoming larger or changing in some way, you would be wise, at least most people would consider you to be wise, if you picked up the phone, called around and found out somebody that knew a physician that specializes in this, who's been to medical school, who's passed the, med the, the state medical exam, who's done an internship, a residency, and whatever comes after that, and has perhaps spent a lifetime devoted to lymphatic cancer, for example. It would be wise to make that kind of inquiry. Yes, if you've got a cold, go to WebMD. You know, see, go to any kind of numerous websites, find out what the remedies that, that could be prescribed with any kind of problems are, and feel free to use that. But most of us would consider you to be f pretty foolish if you used a, a site like WebMD to self-diagnose Hodgkin's disease or something. I mean, wouldn't you? Most of us would. Because there are people that have spent their lives, devoted their lives, to learning about that aspect of our world. You could take it to, to your taxes. If you've got taxes that are not really that hard to do, maybe there's a very, very simple thing. You could go to the Internet. You could... There are many companies, there are certain software programs that you can use, fill out your own taxes, send them in. A lot of people do them. One of the most popular things around are these, we used to call them doc in the box when it was for medical things, but they've got these CPAs in a box now, you know, that, that uh, and they're, they're very fine if it's a simple procedure. But if there's a potential that you might have a tax issue, wouldn't you normally consult the CPA and let them fill out your taxes for you? If, it's, if you have any idea that there may be a complicating factor there, does that make sense? It's the same way if you've got a certain amount of funds that you want to invest. You can go to the Internet or any other thing, look at a newsletter, say, well, I'm going to look at this newsletter, this one, and this one, and you could, you could put the information together and, and probably lose a lot of your money. <laughs> I've done that a lot of times. But on the other hand, if you were wise, wouldn't you consult somebody who has devoted their life to that particular area, it would make sense. I trust that you see where I'm going with this. Uh, computer software or, or websites on the Internet don't replace the need for professionalism in law and in medicine and in accounting or in financial, the financial investment world or any other number of things like architecture, engineering. If you're going to build a house, you could theoretically go to the Internet and do one of these self-design programs, and that'd be okay, but if you're going to build a bridge that uh, my car is going to have to drive over, I hope you're an engineer. I hope you've had some sort of training to do that. I hope it's just not one of these self-help projects like a, a Home Depot thing. You know, Home Depot thing, do it for me. Actually, Home Depot's new model is, is uh, uh, I mean, do it yourself now. It's kind of do it for me. They've kind of done a little different turn with some of their marketing. So all these areas, law, accounting, medicine, engineering, and so forth, we, we rely on people who have devoted themselves, spent a great deal of their life and time, becoming as expert as they can be in that particular area. Now, I want to say this before I go to the next subject, that, that professional training 
doesn't necessarily mean that a person's going to be competent. In any field, there are going to be attorneys that are not competent, and it's up to that, it's up to other attorneys and their associations and their state association, whatever, to find out which ones aren't and to weed those out. Same way with medicine and the accounting professions and all this. So I'm not saying that personal training ensures competence, but it gives an individual a leg up on it. That's all I'm saying there. Now, if medicine's important and law is important and engineering and accounting, is, is the study of God, is the study of theology any less important? I wouldn't think so. Because, you know, one day those bridges that we cross are not going to be here anymore. And one day we're not going to have any more medical problems. One day we're not going to have to worry about being sued or being arrested. But the things that we, that we consider now from the Word of God and the things that we should be applying from the Word of God, those things are going to go past this life all the way into the next. That's one thing that bridges this life is, is our spiritual life. So the, the availability of, of Bible study software, and a lot of it's out there, and it's a positive development, but it does not preclude or eliminate the need for gifted in individuals who have devoted their lives to a lifetime of study of the Word of God. I don't know why the Christian community wants to take this particular area and say you don't need any seminary training. Now, again, seminary training does not ensure competency, and there have been people who don't have seminary training that have done a really nice job, but we need to be very careful. What, however you choose to do it, you can, and I hope we have many people in our church that do Bible study, and, and the ones that I know that are doing it are spending a lot of time in preparation. And by the way, if you're doing one, feel free to ask any one of us. My, myself or, or Paul or, or uh, Will or, or, or Cam or whoever it may be, if you have a question, call one of us up, and maybe it could save you a lot of problems in the way that you're presenting the material. The reason I preface all my comments tonight with those things is that the passage upon which we're about to embark, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, is one of the most misunderstood and therefore misapplied passages in the New Testament. People look at this in the way they want to look at it, or in the way they think other people want them to look at it, and oftentimes the results have been, I used the word before, dangerous. I don't think, I don't think it takes too much of an imagination for us to realize what might happen if a husband assumed from this passage that he was a dictator, a despotic dictator, and his word goes without any consideration of his wife at all. We have all, I think we, we could all at least tell a story or two, some of us, a, a lot of stories, I'm sure, about what happens when this passage is grossly misapplied. Now, I mentioned that from the husband's standpoint, even from the wife's standpoint, when the passage is misapplied, either to a position of total incredible subservience where I don't even say hello or good morning without permission to do so, to a point where it's totally rejecting the leadership of the husband and home. Those have bad results as well. And the point is the marriage is not going to be what it's supposed to be. So our first, our first goal in taking a look at this passage in tonight's overview 
is going to make sure that when we get through applying this passage, we're going to apply this passage and not some sloppy interpretation of it. Because if Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 is properly exegeted, if it's properly interpreted, and if it's properly applied, it's a beautiful passage. And it's a passage that any believer would lovingly embrace, enthusiastically embrace, if we understand it right. And that's one of the reasons why in our studies we start at the beginning of a book, generally, and we go through. Because we, we need to make sure we, we understand where we are in this epistle. That's why I've, for a long time I've been harping, you know, doctrine and then application, where we are within that. We need to see how this is fitting in with the flow. And then it needs to be properly exegeted. Word by word, in fact. Now, we're, tonight we're doing an overview, but word by word, in fact. When we do that, we're going to see how beautiful this is. And we are going to run to apply it. And believe me, if you do, within the marriage relationship, the benefits are going to be positive. I promise you that. Now, perhaps you have not read this passage lately. Read it along with me. Wives, this is verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. In verse 30, because we are members of his body, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Before getting into any of the details of this passage, I want us again to remember where we are in the letter. Following his customary pattern of uh, epistolary material, particularly in Ephesians, Paul lays out a beautiful doctrinal case in chapters 1 through 3. And remember that doctrinal case included our salvation, all the many blessings and the benefits that we have because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Remember chapter 2, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not on the basis of works. No one can brag about it. This is a gift of God that we've received. Then in the final three chapters, he outlines behavior that is expected of the believer in view of those first three chapters. Everybody following? You've been through this before. The, the application section, which is chap essentially chapters 4 through 6, essentially, is outlined by a call to unity in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, a call to holiness in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, a call to love, which is central in our application. It's also central in this outline. Love in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, 
We're to walk in the light. We're to have a, life, a lifestyle that's characterized by the light. That was verses 7 through 14. Presently, and this is what's important, we're presently in that section where Paul is calling upon us, based upon what we've learned in the first three chapters, to walk in wisdom or to have a lifestyle that is characterized by wise decisions. Now, keep that in mind as we study verses 22 through 33. We're in that section where Paul is describing what it would be like to live wisely. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, I hope you know. Although the two are closely related, wisdom is knowledge applied. You can be, you can have a lot of knowledge, you can have a, no, a lot of knowledge without wisdom, but you can't really have any wisdom or much wisdom without some knowledge. So in this section, we have been and we will continue to be encouraged to live a lifestyle that is characterized by wisdom that comes as a result of being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. We've studied that idea of filling up by means of the Holy Spirit over the last three weeks. Now Paul has moved on to the result of that being filled up by the Holy Spirit. One of the results is going to be wisdom with regard to our relationships, in, particularly in the house setting. Last week we studied that the filling of the Holy Spirit is represented by four things. This is not exhaustive, but it's representative. First, we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When I'm filled up by means of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do that. I'm going to minister to other people even when I'm talking with them, when I'm singing hymns, if we're just sitting around in the coffee shop. We're going to minister to one another in that way. Second, a second result of being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit is singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord. That's, that's our worship. If you were there on Sunday morning, that's why we did that. We, we're, we're worshiping God, but at the same time, we're ministering to other people. Always giving thanks in the name of God, or to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that reflects an attitude of gratitude because of what we've been given, particularly the blessings in those first three chapters. We should be thankful for them. And if we're thankful, we're going to live a life in a different way than if we're not thankful. And then finally, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Again, these, these things are representative, not exhaustive. Now, the remainder of this chapter, and then chapter 6 through verse 9, will deal with what it means to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Are you kind of seeing how he's outlining this? He gives us those four, actually there's five participles, four commands that are a result of those participles, or that are a result of filling of the Holy Spirit. The fourth one, submitting to one another, is now going to be expanded in three areas. Submission of the wife to the husband, submission of the children to the parents, and submission of the slave to the master or to of the employer to the employee. The presentation of the respective responsibilities in marriage is presented first. And also a lot, a lot more ink is spilled over that one than the others. I guess the idea is if you can get that one, the other ones come pretty easy. But if we mess up on that one, then it seems like we mess up on a lot. Now, basically, the idea that is presented in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, can present it, be, be summarized anyway this way. And I'm going to start with the husband, even though Paul starts with the wife in his outline. In terms of summary, I'm going to start with the husband, and, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Husbands, and that's a lot of you in here. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
and as they love their own body. And that's pretty scary. But since the husband has the leadership role, that's why I'm starting with the husband. That's what I do in my marriage ceremonies, too. I give the husband his vows first. If he's going to be leader, then he's got to start. This has got to start with the husband. Husbands are to love their wives. How are we to love them? We're to love them in the same way that Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, and in the same way that we love ourselves. Now, this verse said that, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Now, I will talk about this in, in the coming weeks, but no one in their right mind has ever hated their own flesh. There are some people with psychological problems that do, do things to themselves. We're not talking about that. But no one in their right mind ever hates their own body. You try to take care of it. When I'm hungry, what do I want to do? What am I going to do? If it's at all possible, I'm going to eat. If I'm thirsty, I'm going to go get myself a drink of water. If I'm tired, I'm going to sleep. If I want to be entertained, I'm going to turn on a football game. You, you get the point. If I feel like I need to exercise, I'm going to go out and exercise. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of my needs. It should be the same way with the way that we love our wives. If I'm going to take care of my needs when I'm thirsty, then what should I do for my wife when she's thirsty? I should take care of that need for her. If she's sleepy, if she's hungry, you, you see the point. And I'm just mentioning very basic needs now. There are, there are many more sophisticated needs that both men and women have. So there's two things. The first thing, I need to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That is as high a reflection of love as you can possibly have. Because what did he do for the church? He died for it. He died for it. Now, are you sure you still want the job? Okay. I ask people this when, when we, before I marry them. Are you sure you, you still want to do that, given the fact this is what you've got to do? If you're going to be a husband in the biblical way, you have got to love your wives as Christ loved the church and as, as you love your own body. Now, wives, what's your responsibility? Wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And second, in the second way, they are also to respect their husbands. Put simply, husbands as the delegated leader in the home, actually, let me back up. Husbands as the God-delegated leader in the home have the responsibility to love their wives in a sacrificial way, with Christ's sacrifice being the model. And just as there is an innate bent toward treating our own bodies well and fulfilling our own needs as they come up, so should the husband treat the wife, and fulfill her needs. The husband has leadership, but he also has responsibility. Now, I know there's a lot of jerks out there. I know it. In the early days of our church, this was the number one problem. I would say in the first five years, this was the number one pastoral problem that I faced. And I heard it more than once. Because we taught this passage, and I would inevitably have a, a wife, a good Christian wife, come to me and say, you mean to tell me, that's always a bad way to start the conversation, <laughs> you mean to tell me that I've got to listen to what he says? Do you know what he's like? Do you know what he told me yesterday? You're saying that that's what the Bible says I've got to do? Well, yeah. Now, there's responsibility for him, too. If he'd come talk to me, this could work out. But it's a big problem. 
when the husband's a jerk, it's a big problem. Of course, now listen, ladies, when you're a jerk, it's a big problem too. Okay? This, this, can, this street goes both ways. And it can go both ways in a positive way, or it can go both ways in a negative way. It's your choice between husband and wife. And your choice. Now, some marriage counselors call the husband and wife together, and they, they have the, the husband and wife talk this out together. And that's all fine. But I would say individually in a, in a Christian way, this can also be handled between you and God. And I, think, and I would propose it needs to be handled there first. Am I going to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the role that God has me to fulfill, following his commands? And if so, if you're a husband, you know what you've got to do now. If you're a wife, you know what you have to do as well. So if a husband has the responsibility given to him by God to lead, his leadership should be exercised in a self-sacrificing way, not in a selfish way. The role of the husband is not one of despotic dictator, but of benevolent leader. He must be constantly considering the needs of his wife, willing the highest and the best for her. I hope you notice that in Scripture, what Christ did for us. He did it for us for a purpose, so that we might be presented holy and blameless. That's the highest and best he could do for us. And this is the responsibility that the husband has. The wife is not ever to be considered an object to be used for one's own self-gratification. That is not a Christian marriage. But the wife is, should be considered to be another human being created in the image of God. For whose well-being he has now assumed, as soon as he says, I do, he has now assumed responsibility for her well-being from a human perspective. The responsibility of the wife, then, is to respect and to submit to her husband as God's delegated leader in the home. Now, you may have a problem with that, but it's God that made the rules, and you're the one that said, I do. At least in this country, most of the time you are. Now, in other countries, sometimes marriages are, are arranged, and the, the fathers get together and do the I do's, but not in our culture. So there's no, there's no excuses here. My friend Osmond, for example, his marriage was essentially arranged between husband and between the two fathers, and they married, they arranged this marriage. He really didn't even know Rose before the marriage, and it took him a while. I don't think Osmond minds me saying it. It took him a while before they really developed that closeness that they have now. But both of them were believers, both of them were committed to the biblical model, and that goes a long way. Now, the wife ultimately submits to her husband out of respect for the Lord. Ultimately, that's the reason that wives respect their husbands. They submit to their husbands because the Lord told them to do that. See, that's the ultimate reason. Not because their husband is good or loving or kind or handsome or whatever it may be. Now, that may be a secondary reason, and that's one of the ways that it's going to spiral upward. But ultimately, the wife is going to submit to the leadership of her husband because that's the way Christ laid it out. And the model for this submission is the church which submits to Christ. So you want to know how that submission looks? The church to Christ. Now, just a couple more short introductory issues before we study this passage in detail over the next couple of weeks. The first, and this is oh so important. 
especially if you're not going to be able to be with us the next couple of weeks, please listen so carefully to these next couple of sentences, especially ladies. But men need to hear this too. Submission does not imply inferiority. Submission does not imply inferiority. Where do I get that concept from, you may ask? Well, I go right straight to the Trinity, to the Godhead. In the Godhead, in the Christian Trinity, there are three persons, co-equal and co-eternal. Co-equal and co-eternal. Now, they, are, they have exactly the same infinite perfections, although they are three distinct persons. Yet, even though they have, have always existed, they are co-equal, they are co-sovereign, yet for our benefit, key idea, for our benefit, the son willingly submitted himself to the leadership of his father. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? When Christ is under incredible pressure, the, the Gospel of Luke tells us the pressure was so high, so intense that he sweat blood, that blood was mixed with his perspiration. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, there's a certain amount of mystery there that's a totally different subject as to what the son's will was and what the father's will was. But we do know from the entirety of the gospel record that the son submitted himself to the will of one with whom he had been and will always be equal. He was eternally equal with the Father. And in fact, the, the scriptures tell us that the Father and the Son then send the Holy Spirit, which indicates the subordination of the Holy Spirit to Father and Son. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is third in the pecking order, or that he's somehow inferior to the Father and the Son. Now, there have been great heresies over this over the course of church history, and those heresies have been quickly dealt with. The church has done a pretty good job of that. The Arian heresy, for, for example, that indicated that Christ was inferior to God or less than God, because he submitted himself to God. There's much more to Arianism than that, but that's, that's a part of it. The, the son submitted to the father for our good. Wives submit to their husbands, not out of inferiority, no matter, no matter what anybody writes or tells you, not out of inferiority, but for the good of the marriage relationship and the family in a larger way. Just because we submit, for example, to legitimately delegated civil authority, that doesn't mean that we consider ourselves inferior to the policeman that's giving us a ticket or to the judge that pronounces our sentence or to a mayor who makes a proclamation that everybody needs to leave Clear Lake by such and such time because of the hurricane. No, but they've been given a position of leadership. And in Romans 13, it does tell us that we're to submit ourselves to legitimately delegated civil authority. And we do so, not for a minute thinking that we're inferior to them, but somehow this, the great satanic lie has been given to all women, particularly Christian women, that if you submit to your husband, it means that you think you're inferior to him. And guess what? Some husbands have bought into that. Please don't do it. As soon as you start acting like you're superior to your wife, your marriage is in big trouble. You're not superior. You just happen to be, because of God's infinite sense of humor, given that leadership role. I know it. You know it. It's the dishonest truth, isn't it? That's what you think. <laughs> what was he thinking when he made the husband the leader? Well, I don't know. You know, it all goes back to Genesis. We studied it recently. <laughs> so that's the first thing that we need to make sure we understand. Just like when we submit to a professor in a classroom, it doesn't mean that we consider the professor to be, in human terms, ontologically, if we could use that, superior to us. No, they just have the leadership role at that particular moment in time. 
That's the first thing. The, the second, the last thing is, both the man and the woman were created in the image of God and are therefore equal before God to each other. Both the man and the woman are created in God's image and therefore have equality before God. Put it another way, I, I like the way Peter put it when, when he's talking about husbands treating wives, uh, treating them in this way because they are those for whom Christ also died. I like that. Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It lets us know that Christ cares for the woman. He cares for the man. He loves both males and females. They're created in his image. That means they have value before God, both males and females, and it should be understood. So often this passage is not. I told you a minute ago it's one of the biggest problems in the early part of our church. One day, in my first year at Dallas Seminary, for whatever reason, I was tested a few few times in my very first semester because I decided when I went up there I was keeping my mouth shut. I, I had created enough problems for myself. I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> it didn't happen, by the way, if that's what you want. But I had, I had resolved to keep my mouth shut. I wasn't going to say anything. Well, then they had a forum on feminism. I was a little offended by that forum on feminism to begin with. Why we're having it at Dallas Seminary, but we had these there was a panel up there. It was in a large classroom. I sat right up close to the front. It was a voluntary thing. It was kind of a lunchtime deal. And, and um, one of my theology professors was the moderator. And when it came time, I, I asked one of the people that was on that forum a, a piercing question, which the moderator didn't like. And this woman from Oxford turned around and, and told me how the feminist movement did all these things and just screamed at me, yelled at me, nobody stopped. And I said, well, nevertheless, you know, how do you handle this and this and this? When I left that particular meeting, there were two guys from another seminary that were visiting in the back. They asked if they could have a word with me. I said, why not? <laughs> Do you want a piece? There's some left. <laughs> Pick whichever one you want. And they said, listen, we couldn't say anything because we're visitors here. We said, we, we were aghast. We said, and we're shocked that only one person out of the 90 that were in the room even challenged these people. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Now, I don't know if it did me good or bad because then that led to the next one. <laughs> in one of my following classes, we had another forum on fem feminism. I have no idea why it was. This, this class was the first class after lunch. Having gone home for lunch that day, I was listening to the radio coming back. And ABC News had a study that they had presented as part of the newscast that at, this was uh, early 90s, that women in the United States, based upon surveys they had taken, were more unhappy at that point than at any time in the history of that survey. I just stuck that in the back of my head. Well, I went to the class, and before the class, the professor made it very, very clear, and uh, this was the, the Bruce rule, that no one was to, was to try to ask any questions to these people in any challenging way. That we were to listen respectfully, and if you had a question that would be helpful, you could ask it, but he, he said, if you ask, if you ask, any question, because word had gotten around, I know, I know this, and I wasn't trying to be unkind, but word had gotten around, if you ask any question that is designed to cause these women to stumble, you will be expelled from this class. I said, okay. So I just, well, no problem. So I sat there and listened, and it was, I, I listened to four women, one of whom is well-known, so I won't tell you her name, absolutely berate the, the, all the male students in that class. Hateful, radical feminism, not, not anything that's feminine about it, radical feminism. And so when it was over, I raised my hand, and, and the professor you know, leaned forward, <laughs> and he was ready to, to explain.
tell me. And I said, I just, I have one question for the ones that have been loved out. I said on the way over here, I heard a news report by ABC that said women are more unhappy now than at any time in the history of service. I said, to what would you ascribe that? And she said, well, probably radical change. I said, thanks. Well, I wanted to. Well, he couldn't throw me out of class because I, I hadn't, I asked, she agreed with me. But one of my friends was so sweet and so kind, and he went up and said, do you think Bumgarner asked that question, you know, in a legitimate way? I said, no. He knew, he knew exactly where he was going, but I can't throw him out because, you know, we're going to hear this later. Now, this, is, this is a big issue. <laughs> this is a big issue. Yeah, he was a great person. He's been a great man. No, he was trying to throw me under the bus to win points. But here's the point. The point is, even at the seminary level, this, these are things that are being discussed. You should hear some of the interpretive options that people give to these passages. It's not that hard. Here, here's how you want to have a great marriage in a nutshell. Starts with a husband. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Sacrificially leading the home as a servant leader. That's how you do it. If that happens and the wife is anywhere close to being normal, you know, and, and I know sometimes that, that you don't get the normal responses. I know sometimes. I know sometimes. I'll tell you why. There's sometimes responses aren't what you expect. But if she if she's a normal human being, she is going to respond favorably to that. Who wouldn't? If you're placing, I'm not talking about in a groveling way, but in a true loving way, if you're placing her first, who wouldn't respond to that? And she is going to be more than happy to submit to the leadership of a husband who has her needs in mind, wouldn't she? She'd be crazy not to. Now, there are times when, for whatever reason, this train gets off the tracks. And you wonder, well, how do we fix this? You can't fix the other person. You can only fix yourself. Husbands, you still need to love her. Even if she's not that lovable at a particular moment, you still have to be self-sacrificing. Wives, you need to submit to the leadership of your husband, even if he's being a jerk that evening. You see, that's the point. Now, this doesn't mean, and we'll study it as we go along, this doesn't mean, again, that husbands are despotic dictators who demand of a wife something that is illegal or something that's sinful. We're not, we're not talking about that. There are boundaries within, for this submission that would keep some of these tragedies from happening. Serious tragedies, even in our own city, when this is taken wrong, either by one or the other. But if you want your marriage to spiral in a great way, it starts with you. And you fulfill your responsibility, as Paul has outlined under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in this particular case. We're going to study this in a lot more detail. That's the overview. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've set apart for us tonight to look into your word. Now, we know that while this not, might not be an easy teaching, that this is what you have for us. We know that both husband and wife, as they're involved in marriage, are flawed individuals with old sin natures. So we know that this is not going to be adhered to in a perfect way. But when we get off the track, help us to, to do what we can do. To love when we're a husband, to love sacrificially. If we're a wife, to respect and to, and to submit, even in times when the husband's not worthy of submission. Help us to do this so that our marriages might honor you and might be a testimony to a world that needs you so much. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name.